How can a human being just disappear into thin air? Almost as mysterious, how many times have I opened an episode with that same question? And even more mysterious, how many more in the future will I also open with that same question? Back before the wizards of the 21st century put tracking devices in everyone's pockets, one could seemingly walk off into the sunset and not leave a single sign as to where they went. Which was great news if you were someone who wanted to walk off into the sunset and never return, but terrible news for the people left to wonder where you disappeared to and why. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan, a person who has contemplated how they would disappear from life, but ultimately knows they'd miss Wordle too much. And to be fair, I'd probably also miss the comforts of my home. I'd even miss sharing these strange stories with you, stranger. Can't get enough of it, honestly, which is why we've started a Patreon to pump out even more strange and unexplainedness than ever before. Join us over at patreon.com slash strange and unexplained for three additional bonus episodes every month, plus ad-free versions of our regular weekly episodes and other strange treats. But now, back to our regularly scheduled program. Today, we're going to put on our bell-bottom jeans, paisley button-downs, and leather vests with the fringe, and take a groovy trip to Los Angeles, California in the late 60s and early 70s, where one man's quest for success ended abruptly on a long, lonely road far from home. Did he run afoul of the law? Did he get mixed up with a dangerous mafia family? Or did Jim Sullivan somehow foreshadow his own disappearance with an album he wrote titled UFO. Jim Sullivan was born in Nebraska in 1939, one in a brood of seven siblings. The whole family pulled up stakes during World War II and headed west during the Great Dust Bowl migration like they were the Joads. That's a reference to the Grapes of Wrath, which you probably read in eighth grade, but just so you think I'm smarter than I actually am. The family settled in San Diego, where Jim had a pretty stereotypical adolescence. He was a quarterback on his high school football team, fell in love and eventually married the homecoming queen, Barbara and played guitar in a band with Barbara's sister Kathy called The Survivors that played gigs around San Diego. By 1968, Jim and Barbara and their seven-year-old son Chris moved to Los Angeles so Jim could find more success as a musician. Barbara landed a job at Capitol Records and supported the family while Jim played local gigs and tried to make connections. Chris would later tell the New York Times, Let me put it diplomatically. The idea that he might have to be a square and go work for someone else was probably as repulsive to him as cutting off his hand. The local gigs landed Jim a manager, Bob Ginter, who managed to book Jim at bigger venues like the Lindy Opera House in L.A. and the Lighthouse in Redondo Beach, about an hour south of L.A., plus a regular gig at the Raft in Malibu, where, according to his wife, he drew packed houses every time he played. According to the blog Underappreciated Rock Artists and Bands, quote, he packed the place night after night and was able to rub elbows with Hollywood figures like Farrah Fawcett Majors, Lee Majors, Lee Marvin, Harry Dean Stanton, and Vic Morrow, end quote. It didn't hurt that Jim was charismatic and likable. 
As Rebecca Bengel wrote for The New York Times in 2019, quote, Jim Sullivan was the kind of California character who seemed to have stepped straight out of a Pinchon or DeLillo novel. A six-foot-two singer and songwriter known as Sully with a magnetic personality and a handlebar mustache. His dramatic psych folk songs were spacious, cinematic, and edged with mystic, lonesome brooding, end quote. According to the blog Aquarium Drunkard, Jim and his family hosted Hollywood up-and-comer Harry Dean Stanton for Thanksgiving one year. Rebecca Bengel wrote for The Times, quote, his social circle included actors and Hollywood hangers-on, and he'd had brushes with fame, including an uncredited part in Easy Rider with his friend Dennis Hopper, end quote. Jim's friend Lee Birch told the Aquarium Drunkard blog, he always wore that hat, had that big handlebar mustache. He was a big, rough guy. He liked to drink beer and play. He played his tits off. He was a good 12-string player. Jim's friend, former actor Al Dobbs of Laugh-In fame, had become a big fan. He told The Times, I think a lot of us were searching, trying to find what we could put in our minds. And I'm not sure Jim was searching. I think Jim was trying to get what he had inside of him out. Dobbs believed in Jim so much, he raised enough money to start a small record label called Monty and got some pretty big heavy hitters to back him up, including famed studio band The Wrecking Crew, who played on songs like The Beach Boys' Good Vibrations, The Fifth Dimension's Aquarius Let the Sunshine In, and with bands like The Birds, Sonny and Cher, Simon and Garfunkel, The Mamas and the Papas, and The Carpenters. Like, they played on pretty much every hit record from 1963 to 1975. With the help of these music industry giants, Jim recorded his first album, UFO, in 1969. But even with the wrecking crew behind him, his Hollywood friends, and a wife who worked at Capitol Records, Jim's UFO didn't take off. See what I did there? As Rebecca Bengel wrote in the New York Times, quote, UFO was released in 1969, the year of the moon landing, Abbey Road, and Woodstock. Dobbs and his cohorts didn't have money to promote it. We used to joke about the numbers of copies it sold, he said, end quote. But it wasn't a joke to Jim, who was not only hurt as an artist by the album's lackluster reception, but was also desperately hoping to be able to contribute to his family financially with his music. Jim would get another chance, though, in 1972, when a very unlikely figure decided to start a record label. Like Elon Musk deciding that having conquered the world of electric cars and general douchebaggery, it was time to go into the social media business, Hugh Hefner, king of the nudie magazine, decided in 1972 to start a record label under the Playboy umbrella. Because, you know, nothing says I know music more than a guy whose expertise is which kinds of women men want to beat off to while explaining that they really only buy the magazine for the articles. To his credit, Hefner wanted to produce an album for one of his cover models, Barbie Benton, and thought creating a label was the best way to do that. 
So it would seem that he saw at least one of his models as an actual person. Either that or he was just trying to milk her for whatever he could. But one singer does not a record label make, so Hefner hired a couple guys to build up the roster, one of whom, Al Birch, discovered Jim playing at a club in L.A. and signed him up. Jim recorded his second album, this one self-titled, under Hugh Hefner's new Playboy record label. Now, look, I'm no music historian or musicologist or whatever. To be honest, I suppose my taste is rather pedestrian. So rather than tell you that Jim's music isn't really my cup of tea, I'll let someone with more knowledge describe this album. That person would be Jason P. Woodbury, host of the Transmissions podcast through the Aquarium Drunkard website and author of the piece on the site about Jim. Woodbury wrote, quote, Backed by Hefner's money, Birch decided that Jim's follow-up to UFO ought to sound rougher, earthier. He envisioned a punchier mix, something less ethereal, a cooking rhythm section, and overt psychedelic touches including fuzz guitar and tipple. The Jim Sullivan record sounds supremely confident. The more mystically tinged songs wouldn't sound out of place on UFO, but rockers like Show Me the Way to Go and the Wawa and Horn bolstered Tomcat cast Jim in a funky, hard-swinging light. A number of songs perfectly capture the feel of the early 70s AM radio stylings like the easy-rolling Sunny Jim and the shuffling Biblical Boogie, True He's Gone. But there are experiments, too, like Amos, where the band segues from a mellow groove, Sullivan's chiming 12-string high in the mix, into a swirling freakout of distorted guitars. Now play softly in a band, acoustically, because he just don't give a damn, Sullivan sings. They're all waiting for the ringing ears to stop. End quote. But Hefner's money wasn't enough to get this album off the ground either. Bengal at the Times attributes this, in part, to record shops not knowing how to sell an album produced under a company known more for centerfolds than for music, and to the apparent reality that Hefner's marketing savvy, quote, didn't extend to music, end quote. Some retailers wouldn't even carry the record at all because of its connection to Playboy. Added to the hesitance of retailers was the refusal of radio DJs to play records without receiving payouts first. If your record made it onto the radio, it was likely because someone at the record label greased the palm of a radio disc jockey with an overinflated sense of power. And so, the album failed. Lee Birch told the Aquarium Drunkard blog, I don't know that it was ever promoted that way. It was almost like it was never released. It just escaped. Jim took his second commercial failure in three years very hard. His son, Chris, would later tell the New York Times, The Playboy record marked the dissolution of our family. It was made with care and love and quality, but no one was buying it. 
Jim and Barbara decided to separate, though it seems it was more of a timeout than a prelude to a divorce. Jim planned to go to Nashville and try his luck there and bring his wife and son out once he'd found steady work. He was going to meet up with Barbara's sister, Kathy Doran, the lead singer of his first band, The Survivors, and her husband, Dave, who'd found some success as a session musician in Nashville. In an interview for a short documentary made by Light in the Attic Docs about Jim called The Jim Sullivan Story, Barbara said, I didn't really want to leave L.A. I love L.A. But, um, but Jim felt that he could make better progress with his career with my sister and her husband in Nashville. Our plan was um, we would go there if he made it, even a little bit. If he made money, then Chris and I would go. And so, on March 4, 1975, Jim packed up and, with about $125 in his pocket, climbed into his VW Bug. It is an immutable law of science that any story that takes place in the U.S. in the late 60s, early 70s, must include a VW, either in bug or bus form, and headed east for Nashville. A little more than 24 hours later, on March 5th at 3.15 Pacific Standard Time, Jim called Barbara to say he was okay. In a statement obtained by the New York Times, Barbara recalled, He said he called to let me know he was all right. Uh, Since he had just left the day before, I had no reason to think otherwise. I was a little startled by his remark. I asked him for his driver's license number, for car insurance, and asked him where he was. He said, Santa Rosa. I said, where is that? And he said, New Mexico. I'll probably be leaving here tomorrow. I asked why he was waiting, and he said, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. I said, Jim, what's the matter? Is anything wrong? He said, forget it. Just forget I said anything. I'll call you from Nashville. And with that strange, cryptic statement, the call was over. It was the last time Barbara would ever speak to her husband. After about a week on March 14th, when Barbara hadn't heard back from Jim, she called the Santa Rosa Police Department and asked how to go about filing a missing persons report. Santa Rosa PD told her she'd have to file in Los Angeles, since that was where Jim was last known to be seen. Strangely, though, while Barbara had the Santa Rosa officer on the phone, he somehow neglected to tell her that Jim had been picked up by the police on March 5th for possible drunk driving. He'd been swerving on the road after his long drive from L.A. The police had taken him into the station for a sobriety test, which he passed, and then they let him go. I'm no ophthalmologist, but doesn't arresting someone qualify as seeing them? Barbara's sister asked the police officer if Jim was in jail, to which he replied, no, quote, but if you ask me, that's where he belongs, end quote. And I don't know if Barbara just didn't pick up on that comment or what, but if the officer thought Jim belonged in jail, then obviously the officer knew who Jim was, which meant he had definitely seen him. It turns out, on the night of March 5th, after leaving the station, Jim checked into the La Mesa Motel in Santa Rosa. He then went and bought a bottle of vodka, drove around for a bit, and asked a gas station attendant for directions to California. His bed at the motel was never slept in. 
I probably don't have to point out the oddities here, right? He got pulled over for suspected drunk driving, passed the sobriety test, and then promptly went out and bought alcohol and started driving around. And unless he drank the entire bottle of vodka and was just deliriously drunk, how could he have forgotten that to get to California from almost anywhere in the U.S., one simply needs to drive west? Three days later, on March 8th, Jim's car was towed to an impound lot. It had been found 23 miles off the main road on a ranch road belonging to a Mrs. Gennetti, whose first name doesn't seem to exist in any record. There are multiple reported versions of what may have happened at the Gennetti Ranch. One is that Mrs. Gennetti saw Jim's headlights on her road and went down with a couple of ranch hands to see if he needed any help. She asked Jim if he had a problem, and he allegedly replied, No. Do you? Another version is that Jim knocked on Mrs. Gennetti's door, but she only spoke Italian, so she didn't understand what he was saying. This seems a little dubious to me. One would imagine that even if she didn't speak English, she would have eventually seen Jim's picture in the paper in the search effort and gone down to the police station to say he'd come to her house on the 5th. Even with the language disconnect, I'm sure she could have made that known to police. Yet another version is that after Jim told Mrs. Gennetti that he didn't have a problem, she called a neighbor who called the police. If that was the case, why, again, didn't someone at the Santa Rosa PD let Barbara know when she called just six days later to file the missing persons report? And why didn't they let her know Jim's car was sitting on the impound lot? According to the Aquarium Drunkard piece, years later, the son of a ranch hand from Mrs. Gennetti's ranch recalled his father asking Jim if he needed a ride, which Sullivan declined. Though the interaction couldn't be verified, according to the Santa Rosa News, that ranch hand, Pete Cena, was the last person to have interacted with Jim. The article didn't elaborate what the interaction was, but according to the Aquarium Drunkard, Cena's son reported that he had seen a man on that road earlier that week, standing by his car. We thought he was some cowboy. He had a handlebar mustache, just like a cattle hand we knew. Another witness recalled driving by Jim's car on the way to work and thinking it odd that it was just sitting there in the middle of the road with no apparent driver nearby. And then on his way back from work, all the doors of the VW Bug, which is to say three, I guess, if you count the boot, were open. Apparently, police had been to the car and had searched it and then, I guess, just left it there with the doors open? Unfortunately, we don't know what day this witness said he saw this. I would have to assume it was the 8th since that's when the car got towed to the impound lot. According to the Aquarium Drunkard piece, quote, When the police found Jim's car, it was locked and the engine was dead. A number of things were found in the car, including Jim's wallet, guitar, clothes, reel-to-reel tapes, cassettes, silver appointment book, and a box of LPs of Jim's 1972 self-titled album on the Playboy label, end quote. One wonders why police took so long to investigate the abandoned car, but it's possible that every witness who saw it figured someone else must have already reported it. 
but that would mean that between the time Jim checked into the motel on the 5th and March 8th when the car was impounded, the VW had just been sitting there on the road. Three days seems like a long time for an unknown car with California plates to be sitting on a little-used New Mexico ranch road 23 miles off the main drag. No? And again, if Mrs. Gennetti's neighbor called the police, wouldn't they have ostensibly been out there to investigate on the 5th? Not only that, but when his car was reported abandoned on the 8th, Shouldn't there have been a record that the same car had been pulled over just three days earlier for suspected drunk driving and the driver arrested? It seems to me that police should have been able to glean pretty quickly whose car it was. When Jim's wife Barbara called on the 14th, the police told her she would have to file the missing persons report in Los Angeles because that's where he was last seen. They had to have either been confused or lying. Someone, likely multiple people, had indeed seen and interacted with Jim at the police station on March 5th. At any rate, it took police until March 21st to let Barbara know that Jim's car had been towed to the impound lot two weeks earlier. Barbara and her son traveled to Santa Rosa as soon as they found out Jim was missing, but authorities were hardly helpful in the search, and though Jim's picture was printed in local papers, according to the Aquarium Drunkard piece, the local sheriff had retired and the Genetis moved to Hawaii. If there were more than one Genetti, you'd think that one of them might know enough English to have reported Mrs. Genetti's encounter with Jim on March 5th, before the family moved to Hawaii in the wake of Jim's disappearance. But anyway. Chris Sullivan, Jim's son, recalled many years later in an interview with Flood magazine, After the facts, no, we heard absolutely nothing about what happened to my dad. Our families were out there for a time. They were bulldogs, even tried to get people to fess up, but nothing ever came of it. I've had a long time to think about all this. And he told the Times that the day his father left, I went up to him and said, Okay, we'll see you later. And I shook his hand. And that was it. That was the last thing I said to the guy. Drive safe, some inane thing like that. Sometime in the 2000s, music historian and founder of The Light in the Attic Records, Matt Sullivan, no relation to Jim, found a bootleg version of Jim Sullivan's album UFO on the music site Waxidermy and became obsessed with Jim's music. On another post for Aquarium Drunkard, Matt Sullivan wrote, I'm listening to the album for that magical first time, one of those music moments that you live for but seldom find, the dark, eerie strings and psych-ish mix with Earl's drums way up front recall David Axelrod's finest work. Sullivan's voice is deep and expressive like Fred Neal with a weathered and worldly Americana sound like Joe South or Gene Clark. Pop songs that aren't happy but filled with despair. Almost as if the aforementioned Axelrod or Memphis great Jim Dickinson were running the show. What the fuck was this? What the fuck, indeed. I have no idea what most of that paragraph is about, but maybe you do, stranger. Sometimes I'm bummed I'm not more of a music nerd, and I mean that term affectionately. 
And then I remember that talking to one of these guys at a party is exhausting. Like, we get it, dude. You like music. I like sleeping, but you're not going to hear me waxing on about the different sleep cycles and developments in pillow technology or whatever. Anyway. Going through the comments section on Waxidermy is, shockingly, not the kind of traumatizing nightmare one usually finds oneself in when they venture into the comments section. Instead, Matt Sullivan learned about Jim's disappearance and became interested because, honestly, how could you not, really? He wrote, I immediately reached out to Jeff Hassett at Waxidermy, who kindly put me in touch with Jim's family and thus began a long quest to uncover the genius of UFO and what went down in March 75. I nervously put together an email for Jim's family and send it off. Turns out Jim's son, Chris, was already aware of Matt Sullivan's record label being something of a music nerd himself. Matt wrote, 24 hours later, the phone rings. I look at the caller ID and see Chris Sullivan trying to stomach if this is Jim's son, Chris, calling and or some long-lost relative who shares my last name. I begin to explain how we hope to reissue the album and exactly what we plan to do. Turns out Chris already has our releases of Karen Dalton and Jamaica to Toronto. This is the first and probably the last time that will ever happen. Chris and I hit it off like we are family. With Jim's family's blessings, Matt Sullivan dove deep into the mystery. He went to Santa Rosa and visited the Santa Rosa News archives, and as he wrote for Aquarium Drunkard, he found... Giant, bound books containing decades of the newspaper. Drooling with anticipation, we find the book from 1975 and begin searching for articles about Jim. We start in early March when he disappeared. We find an article with the headline, Possibly Sullivan, about authorities finding a badly decomposed body buried in a remote area eight miles west of Las Cruces. They believed it might be Jim. The man appeared to have been dead less than a month, was between the ages of 30 and 40, measured 6 foot 2 and 180 pounds, had a tattoo on his right forearm, and wore a mustache and a short beard. The body had been found on April 13, 1975, about five weeks after and 245 miles from where Jim had last been seen. However, a follow-up article published shortly after said the Santa Rosa police chief traveled to Las Cruces and determined that, quote, while it bore some resemblance to Jim, it wasn't him, end quote. So, what gives? Where the hell did Jim disappear to? Why? And also, why were Santa Rosa police being so cagey with their information? In her 2019 piece for the New York Times, reporter Rebecca Bengal interviewed former reporter Davy Delgado from The Communicator, a local paper in Santa Rosa. In a town of only 2,800 people in 1975, 2,000 people got The Communicator. Delgado said, quote, This isn't a town where you can steal a piece of bubblegum without everyone knowing about it, end quote. And yet, as Bengal points out in her article, quote, no one seems to know what became of Jim Sullivan, end quote. Delgado claimed that he believed Jim's case had been properly investigated, telling Bengal, quote, there was no arroyo left unturned. 
and no trace of him found, end quote. But Donald Cena, son of the former ranch hand who'd seen Jim's car from his school bus window all those years ago, disagrees. He told Bengal, I always thought there was something strange about how it went down, why they didn't investigate it more. Chris Sullivan, Jim's son, for his part, thinks something was definitely off with the police. He told Flood magazine, I think he got on the wrong side of someone out there and was probably murdered or buried. He was stopped by the police out there, and law enforcement has a way with making people disappear. It was odd, of course, that all of his stuff was left behind. If you were killed or disposed of, would someone not get rid of all the evidence? He was, after all, a hippie from California who was also likely pretty drunk. A drunk California hippie and police are not a good mix. According to music historian Matt Sullivan, some people think Mrs. Gennetti and the Gennetti family were secretly in with the mafia and that they were part of a big Chicago crime family. Matt Sullivan doesn't expound on this theory, but it's safe to say the implication is that Mrs. Gennetti had Jim rubbed out and told her boys to make him swim with the fishes or whatever the New Mexico desert version of that is. Squirm with the earthworms? Doze in the dirt? Something like that. There is zero evidence of the Genettis being involved with the Mafia. There was a Jenna crime family who was prominent in Chicago during the Prohibition, but that's A, a different name, and B, 40 to 50 years before Jim wound up on the Genetti Ranch in New Mexico. Simply put, this rumor reeks of ethnic profiling. And then, of course, there's aliens. And honestly... Thank goodness, because I feel like it's been a while since we've had an alien abduction theory. In an interview on the radio program Coast to Coast, Jim's old producer Al Dobbs said, He and Barbara had a long, long history of UFO interest. They were, as many of us, were fascinated by something from another world. We want to believe in it. I want to believe in it. I'd love to see them land tomorrow. Sir, same. Please, for the love of Mary Louise Parker, please let the aliens land and take me away. But radio host Ian Punnett replied to Dobbs, quote, There's no reported UFO activity, nothing that says this could have happened, except a general sort of family feeling that if anybody would have had a close encounter like that, it would have been Jim. He was open to it, he would have loved it, and maybe it's just a fond wish of a family to think that, but whatever it is, he literally just disappears off the face of the earth, end quote. And while most loved ones of missing people might roll their eyes at the alien abduction scenario, Jim's widow, Barbara, finds it a comfort. Her son, Chris, told The Times, and My parents weren't addled by any great intake of drugs, but they were very much of their times and believed in reincarnation and astrology. She was convinced he was up in the stars somewhere waiting for her. Chris also told Flood Magazine, For sure, they both believed that there was life out there. UFOs were part of his life, and my mom's too. They were both born during the Depression, raised in pretty Catholic, dogmatic families, came of age at a time of exploration, a classic 60s trajectory, the whole trip. Plus, my dad was a mystical guy, and you could put air quotes around mystical if you like. 
And in the Light in the Attic documentary, he said this of his mother. She was a pretty free-thinking person, that there was a multidimensional realm we all could occupy, and that eventually they could occupy that realm together. Hell, why not? On the other hand, Chris acknowledges that his dad may have voluntarily walked away from his life. He told Flood magazine, Maybe he just took a long walk. Maybe the grind of trying to make it in an industry he loved so much and failed at, for lack of a better word, just got to him. And maybe I have some mysticism to me as well, tempered with pragmatism that overwhelms me. Perhaps he just walked into the desert. The mystery of it all is just nagging. A long way to say that I have no idea. I would say, as someone who has been pig-headed or determined enough to grind away for more than 30 years, that seven years isn't really that long of a grind in show business years, but some people aren't built to withstand it. Some people are saner than I and just don't want to put up with the nonsense. Of course, walking off into the desert isn't the sanest option to choose, but to each their own, I suppose. According to the Aquarium Drunkard piece, Robert Ginter also thought it was possible that Jim chose to simply walk off into the desert. Quote, Jim's manager, Robert Buster Ginter, later stated that during the early morning hours of a long evening, Jim and Buster were talking about what would you do if they had to disappear. Jim said he'd walk into the desert and never come back, end quote. And while Matt Sullivan ultimately wasn't able to solve the mystery of what happened to Jim Sullivan, he was able, finally, after much maneuvering, to remaster Jim's first album, UFO. He had become increasingly infatuated, as he put it, with Jim's music and thought many of his lyrics foreshadowed his disappearance. I don't necessarily agree, but then again, I'm not the music expert, and really, what do I know? Though I suppose if you pressed me to pick a Jim Sullivan song that did hint at what would happen to him, it would be Highways. In his quest to find all of Jim's original recordings, Matt met up with Jim's former producer, Al Dobbs, He recounted the story for Aquarium Drunkard. Outside Napa, California, around midnight, we meet Al at a Waffle House or some late-night eats place that I can't remember the name of. And let me just interject here with 100% certainty, it wasn't Waffle House because there aren't any Waffle Houses in California. Trust me, I looked for them when I lived there. I don't care what anyone says, Waffle House is the best. Give me those hash browns scattered, diced, and covered any day. Anyway, Sullivan continued. Al has a briefcase full of 25 pages of old contracts involving Jim's music from back in the day, along with the original album cover photo and an eerie shot of Jim walking in the desert in California. Our minds are blown. The shot is indeed eerie. We'll post it on our socials. In 2010, Light in the Attic reissued Jim's albums. Today, his top five songs all have over a million streams each on Spotify. His song UFO tops the list with over five million. 
Personally, I'm inclined to think that Jim, depressed and defeated by a callous and fickle industry, and perhaps drunk on too much vodka, said something he shouldn't have to the wrong cop and ended up buried out on the mesa somewhere. Though, why they would have left all his stuff in his car just sitting there, I don't know. But what I hope happened is that he did indeed walk off toward the sunset into the desert and perhaps slipped into another dimension, one where he is waiting for his wife to meet him. There's a highway telling me to go where I can Such a long way I don't even know where I am Such a long way Next time on Strange and Unexplained, some activists get Nobel Peace Prizes, and some end up on the FBI's list of wanted people. For Anna Mae Pictou Akwash, it was the latter, and it would be the death of her. For even more Strange and Unexplained, check us out on patreon.com slash strangeandunexplained, where you can get three bonus episodes per month for just five bucks. And for just another two dollars, you get all those, plus all the regular episodes ad-free. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineered and mixed by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia, Luther Creek, and Lauren Hooper. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have something you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, head over to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please do help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a glowing review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you don't like the show, feel free to give a one-star and a scathing review. The name of the podcast is The Candace Owens Show. 